0: Chapter Five of The Sea Wolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London, Chapter Five. But my first night in the hunter's steerage was also my last. Next day, Johansen, the new mate, was routed from the cabin by Wolf Larsen and sent into the steerage to sleep thereafter, while I took possession of the tiny cabin stateroom which, on the first day of the voyage, had already had two occupants. The reason for this change was quickly learned by the hunters, and became the cause of a deal of grumbling on their part. It seemed that Johansen, in his sleep, lived over each night the events of the day. His incessant talking and shouting and bellowing of orders had been too much for Wolf Larsen, who had accordingly foisted the nuisance upon his hunters. After a sleepless night, I arose weak and in agony to hobble through my second day on the ghost. Thomas Mugridge routed me out at half-past five, much in the fashion that Bill Sykes must have routed out his dog, but Mr. Mugridge's brutality to me was paid back in kind and with interest. The unnecessary noise he made—I had lain wide-eyed the whole night must have awakened one of the hunters for a heavy shoe whizzed through the semi-darkness and mr mugridge with a sharp howl of pain humbly begged everybody's pardon later on in the galley i noticed that his ear was bruised and swollen it never went entirely back to its normal shape and was called a cauliflower ear by the sailors the day was filled with miserable variety I had taken my dried clothes down from the galley the night before, and the first thing I did was to exchange the cook's garments for them. I looked for my purse. In addition to some small change, and I have a good memory for such things, it had contained $185 in gold and paper. The purse I found, but its contents, with the exception of the small silver, had been abstracted, i spoke to the cook about it when i went on deck to take up my duties in the galley and though i had looked forward to a surly answer i had not expected the belligerent harangue that i received look here ump he began a malicious light in his eyes and a snarl in his throat you want your nose punched if you think i'm a thief just keep it to yourself or you'll find out bloody well mistaken you are strike me blind that this ain't gratitude for you ere you come a poor miserable specimen of human scum and i takes you into my galley and treats you handsome and this is what i get for it next time you can go to hell say i and i've a good mind to give you what for anyway so saying, he put up his fists and started for me. To my shame be it, I cowered away from the blow and ran out the galley door. What else was I to do? Force—nothing but force—obtained on this brute ship. Moral suasion was a thing unknown. Picture it to yourself—a man of ordinary stature, slender of build and with weak, undeveloped muscles who has lived a peaceful placid life and is unused to violence of any sort what could such a man possibly do there was no more reason that i should stand and face these human beasts than that i should stand and face an infuriated bull so i thought it out at the time feeling the need for vindication and desiring to be at peace with my conscience but this vindication did not satisfy nor to this day can I permit my manhood to look back upon those events and feel entirely exonerated. The situation was something that really exceeded rational formulas for conduct and demanded more than the cold conclusions of reason. When viewed in the light of formal logic, there is not one thing of which to be ashamed. But nevertheless, a shame rises within me at the recollection and in the pride of my manhood I feel that my manhood has, in unaccountable ways, been smirched and sullied, all of which is neither here nor there. The speed with which I ran from the galley caused excruciating pain in my knee, and I sank down helplessly at the break of the poop. But the cockney had not pursued me. "'Look at em run! Look at em run!' I could hear him crying and with a game leg at that. Come on back, you poor little mamma's darling. I won't hit you. No, I won't. I came back and went on with my work, and here the episode ended for the time, though further developments were yet to take place. I set the breakfast table in the cabin, and at seven o'clock waited on the hunters and officers. The storm had evidently broken during the night, though a huge sea was still running and a stiff wind blowing. Sail had been made in the early watches so that the ghost was racing along under everything except the two topsails and the flying jib. These three sails I gathered from the conversation were to be set immediately after breakfast. I learned also that Wolf Larsen was anxious to make the most of the storm which was driving him to the southwest into that portion of the sea where he expected to pick up the northeast trades. It was before this steady wind that he hoped to make the major portion of the run to Japan, curving south into the tropics and north again as he approached the coast of Asia. After breakfast I had another unenviable experience. When I had finished washing the dishes, I cleaned the cabin stove and carried the ashes up on deck to empty them. Wolf Larsen and Henderson were standing near the wheel, deep in conversation. The sailor, Johnson, was steering. As I started toward the weather side, I saw him make a sudden motion with his head, which I mistook for a token of recognition, and good morning. In reality, he was attempting to warn me to throw my ashes over the lee side. Unconscious of my blunder, I passed by Wolf Larsen and the hunter, and flung the ashes over the side to windward. The wind drove them back, and not only over me, but over Henderson and Wolf Larsen. The next instant the latter kicked me violently, as a curse kicked. I had not realized there could be so much pain in a kick. I reeled away from him and leaned against the cabin in a half-fainting condition. Everything was swimming before my eyes, and I turned sick. The nausea overpowered me, and I managed to crawl to the side of the vessel. But Wolf Larsen did not follow me up. Brushing the ashes from his clothes, he had resumed his conversation with Henderson. Johansen, who had seen the affair from the break of the poop, sent a couple of sailors aft to clean up the mess. Later in the morning I received a surprise of a totally different sort. Following the cook's instructions I had gone into Wolf Larsen's stateroom to put it to rights and make the bed. Against the wall near the head of the bunk was a rack filled with books. I glanced over them, noting with astonishment such names as Shakespeare, Tennyson, Poe, and De Quincey. There were scientific works, too among which were represented men such as tyndall proctor and darwin astronomy and physics were represented and i remarked bullfinch's age of fable shaw's history of english and american literature and johnson's natural history in two large volumes then there were a number of grammars such as metcalfe's and reed and kellogg's and i smiled as i saw a copy of the dean's english I could not reconcile these books with the man, from what I had seen of him, and I wondered if he could possibly read them. But when I came to make a bed, I found between the blankets, dropped apparently as he had sunk off to sleep, a complete browning, the Cambridge edition. It was open in a balcony, and I noticed here and there passages underlined in pencil. Further letting drop the volume during a lurch of the ship. A sheet of paper fell out. It was scrawled over with geometrical diagrams and calculations of some sort. It was patent that this terrible man was no ignorant clod such as one would inevitably suppose him to be from his exhibitions of brutality. At once he became an enigma. One side or the other of his nature was perfectly comprehensible. But both sides together were bewildering. I had already remarked that his language was excellent, marred with an occasional slight inaccuracy. Of course, in common speech with the sailors and hunters, it sometimes fairly bristled with errors, which was due to the vernacular itself. But in the few words he had held with me, it had been clear and correct. This glimpse I had caught of his other side must have emboldened me, for I resolved to speak to him about the money I had lost. I have been robbed! I said to him a little later, when I found him pacing up and down the poop, alone. "'Sir,' he corrected, not harshly, but sternly. "'I have been robbed, sir,' I amended. "'How did it happen?' he asked. Then I told him the whole circumstance, how my clothes had been left to dry in the galley, and how later I was nearly beaten by the cook when I mentioned the matter. He smiled at my recital. Pickings he concluded cookies pickings and don't you think your miserable life is worth the price besides consider it a lesson you'll learn in time how to take care of your money for yourself i suppose up to now your lawyer has done it for you or your business agent i could feel the quiet sneer through his words but demanded how can i get it back again that's your lookout YOU HAVEN'T ANY LAWYER OR BUSINESS AGENT NOW, SO YOU'LL HAVE TO DEPEND ON YOURSELF. WHEN YOU GET A DOLLAR, HANG ON TO IT. A MAN WHO LEAVES HIS MONEY LYING AROUND THE WAY YOU DID DESERVES TO LOSE IT. BESIDES, YOU HAVE SINNED. YOU HAVE NO RIGHT TO PUT TEMPTATION IN THE WAY OF YOUR FELLOW CREATURES. YOU TEMPTED COOKIE, AND HE FELL. YOU HAVE PLACED HIS IMMORTAL SOUL IN JEOPARDY. BY THE WAY, DO YOU BELIEVE IN THE IMMORTAL SOUL? His lids lifted lazily as he asked the question, and it seemed that the deeps were opening to me and that I was gazing into his soul. But it was an illusion. Far as it might have seemed, no man has ever seen very far into Wolf Larsen's soul. Or seen it at all. Of this I am convinced. It was a very lonely soul, I was to learn, that never unmasked, though at rare moments it played at doing so. I read immortality in your eyes, I answered, dropping the sir, an experiment, for I thought the intimacy of the conversation warranted it. He took no notice. By that, I take it you see something that is alive, but that necessarily does not have to live forever. I read more than that, I continued boldly. Then you read consciousness. You read the consciousness of life that is alive but still no further away, no endlessness of life." How clearly he thought, and how well he expressed what he thought. From regarding me curiously he turned his head and glanced over the leaden sea to windward. A bleakness came into his eyes, and the lines of his mouth grew severe and harsh. He was evidently in a pessimistic mood. "'Then to what end?' he demanded abruptly, turning back to me. If I am immortal, why?" I halted. How could I explain my idealism to this man? How could I put into speech a something felt, a something like the strains of music heard in sleep, a something that convinced yet transcended utterance? "'What do you believe, then?' I countered. "'I believe that life is a mess,' he answered promptly. "'It is like yeast a ferment a thing that moves and may move for a minute an hour a year or a hundred years but that in the end will cease to move the big eat the little that they may continue to move the strong eat the weak that they may retain their strength the lucky eat the most and move the longest that is all what do you make of those things he swept his arm in an impatient gesture toward a number of the sailors who were working on some kind of rope stuff amidships they move so does the jellyfish move they move in order to eat in order that they may keep moving there you have it they live for their belly's sake and the belly is for their sake it's a circle you get nowhere neither do they in the end they come to a standstill they move no more they are dead they have dreams, I interrupted. Radiant flashing dreams of grub, he concluded sententiously, and of more grub of a larger appetite and more luck in satisfying it. His voice sounded harsh. There was no levity in it. For look you, they dream of making lucky voyages which will bring them more money, of becoming the mates of ships, of finding fortunes, in short of being in a better position for preying on their fellows, of having all night in, good grub, and somebody else to do the dirty work. You and I are just like them. There's no difference except that we have eaten more and better. I am eating them now, and you too, but in the past you have eaten more than I have. You have slept in soft beds and worn fine clothes, and eaten good meals. Who made those beds, and those clothes, and those meals? Not you. You never made anything in your own sweat. You live on an income which your father earned. You are like a frigate-bird, swooping down upon the boobies and robbing them of the fish they have caught. You are one with a crowd of men who have made what they call a government, who are masters of all other men and who eat the food the other men get and would like to eat themselves you wear the warm clothes they made the clothes but they shiver in rags and ask you the lawyer or business agent who handles your money for a job but that is beside the matter i cried not at all he was speaking rapidly now and his eyes were flashing it is piggishness and it is life of what use or sense is an immortality of piggishness what is the end what is it all about you have made no food yet the food you have eaten or wasted might have saved the lives of a score of wretches who made the food but did not eat it what immortal end did you serve or did they consider yourself and me what does your boasted immortality amount to when your life runs foul of mine? You would like to go back to the land, which is a favorable place for your kind of piggishness. It is a whim of mine to keep you aboard this ship where my piggishness flourishes. And keep you I will. I may make or break you. You may die today, this week, or next month. I could kill you now with a blow of my fist for you are a miserable weakling. But if we are immortal, what is the reason for this? To be piggish as you and I have been all our lives does not seem to be just the thing for immortals to be doing. Again, what's it all about? Why have I kept you here? Because you are stronger, I managed to blurt out. But why stronger? He went on at once with his perpetual queries because i am a bigger bit of the ferment than you don't you see don't you see but the hopelessness of it i protested i agree with you he answered then why move at all since moving is living without moving and being part of the yeast, there would be no hopelessness but and there it is we want to live and move though we have no reason to BECAUSE IT HAPPENS THAT IT IS THE NATURE OF LIFE TO LIVE AND MOVE, TO WANT TO LIVE AND MOVE. IF IT WERE NOT FOR THIS, LIFE WOULD BE DEAD. IT IS BECAUSE OF THIS LIFE THAT IS IN YOU THAT YOU DREAM OF YOUR immortality. THE LIFE THAT IS IN YOU IS ALIVE AND WANTS TO GO ON BEING ALIVE FOREVER. BAH! AN ETERNITY OF piggishness. HE ABRUPTLY TURNED ON HIS HEEL AND STARTED FORWARD. He stopped at the break of the poop and called me to him. "'By the way, how much was it that Cookie got away with?' he asked. "'185 dollars, sir,' I answered. He nodded his head. A moment later, as I started down the companion stairs to lay the table for dinner, I heard him loudly cursing some men amidships. End of Chapter 5